Hello, everybody, and welcome to the My BFF Business Leaders Podcast. This podcast is designed to focus the spotlight on leading voices throughout the world of business. From marketing and technology to energy and finance, this podcast will feature brilliant minds that are shaping the future of every industry. There has never been a better time to make more business friends forever, so let's get started. We really are about representing the companies, and we really just try to help companies use our expertise to find the right talent and, and find the right rhythm and, and strategy to use a player the right way, efficiently and effective. Because it can get very expensive. And you don't want to miss, you know, by getting the right, the wrong celebrity. You want to make sure you got somebody there to kind of guide that along to make sure it goes smooth. And we've been doing this a long time, and there's a lot of companies that use us religiously. And obviously, we have a lot of relationships with some of the greatest players that have ever laced it up. On this episode of the My BFF Business Leaders Podcast, we are joined by a true pioneer in the sports industry and someone who could be called a sports memorabilia founding father, one of Brooklyn's finest, Brandon Steiner. Brandon has an incredible track record of business success, starting the Steiner Agency, Steiner Sports Memorabilia, and the Collectible Exchange. He is also a premier motivational speaker and published author who has appeared frequently on CNBC, CNN, ESPN, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. An esteemed celebrity and business leader, his discussion provides insights for professionals working in any industry. So let's jump right into it. Hi, Brandon. How are you doing today? I'm great. Everything's good. I mean, I wish this virus thing would uh, go away. So I made sure I'd say my prayers every day to hope that the people that are risking their lives stay alive and, and we can, you know, get on to our next phase of life without, you know, worrying about all these people getting sick. So everything else is good. I mean, I've, I tell people all the time, I'm not home because I'm scared. I'm just home because I'm smart. And I don't want to mess around with that stupid virus. And I'm hoping that everybody else follows the same uh, theory so the people, in the, the smart people in the world out there can figure out the solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, keep my prayers open for that to happen soon. Absolutely. And that's what we'll, we'll actually touch on that a little bit later on and, and kind of get into how the impact is, is on the sporting world. But uh, kind of prior to diving into that, could you tell our audience a little bit more about your personal background? Kind of where did you grow up? Uh, where did you study? And so on. Well, you know, listen, when you grow up in Brooklyn, you know, it's kind of a worldwide experience uh, when you grow up in a borough in New York like that. Uh, there is no second place to that growing up. I mean, the experience, the diversity of people, the trials, tribulations, fear, fighting, learning. Um, so grew up in Brooklyn. I went to Syracuse, which was very fortunate, you know, being extremely poor, going to such a really good private school. And um I started a company called Steiner Sports 32 years ago, and now I've started uh, the Steiner Agency, which is an athlete that uh, a company that does athlete procurement, help you use athletes to help your company grow in all sizes, and gets athletes to invest in your company or be spokespersons. And then Collectible Exchange is a complete disruption to the business I started and the industry I started, where it's kind of a version of eBay and where people can go on the site and buy and sell. Uh, products, any products, and we add a lot of authentication things to people that have gotten collectibles on their own, and it also gives the opportunity for athletes to be able to go onto the site and sell directly to the consumer. So it's a, it's a different platform than what I've done in the past, and um, you know, at 60, I figured it was time to do something new and different and, and something that would be helpful to uh, sports fans, and, and 
everybody's a little bit of a collector and this gives everybody an opportunity to trade up or trade in and get stuff that's unique and different. And we have over 50,000 items on the site. And then on the Steiner agency, we just continue to do what we've been doing, which has been a lot of fun, just booking players for all kinds of PR, virtual talks and everything else. That's awesome. And how many players do you guys currently have under your agency's management? We don't manage a lot. We do have a few, but um, we do manage a few, you know, as in uh, the Mariano Rivera's and, and some other players, but we really are about representing the companies and we really just try to help companies use our expertise to find the right talent and, and find the right rhythm and, and strategy to use a player the right way, efficiently and effective, because it can get very expensive. And you don't want to miss you know, by getting the right, the wrong celebrity, you want to make sure you got somebody there to kind of guide that along to make sure it goes smooth. And we've been doing this a long time. And there's a lot of companies that use us religiously. And obviously, we have a lot of relationships with some of the greatest players that have ever laced it up from soccer to basketball, football, baseball, you know, some of the greatest names you, you go to if you go to brandonsteiner.com, you get a little bit of the gist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the Steiner agency, has, we have our own website there. And then you have collectible exchange. Um, I am offering a free copy of any of my three books on collectible exchange. So don't hesitate to go on the website and order a free book for yourself. Um, yeah, I think you just pay for the shipping, but I figure it's the best way to offer people the book on your pod and uh, offer them some extra value. So there you awesome. go. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And yeah, I'm sure our listeners will get a major kick out of that, especially at this time. And you know, all, all anybody has is ample time to read and, and really dive into good information. Um, I actually read on your site that you started this company with just $4,000, a one-room office, and an intern. Um, for professionals that are aspiring to bootstrap their own operations just like this, are there any specific pieces of advice that kind of you'd be willing to share about those experiences? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't recommend starting a company with $4,000. That's <laughs> probably more stupid than it was smart, but you know, it's all I had. And, and, you know, I had a couple of dreams and different ideas. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And that, that was, it was okay. I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of pressure and I, I wasn't looking to get a lot of partners. I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do and it ended up just kind of escalating. But having started now a new business, which I'm going to start with a little more than 4,000 bucks. I think one of the more important things is, is having a, a clear vision about who ultimately you want your customer to be is such an important element. And the finance part is critical. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are good marketers. They're really smart. Um, I see a lot of really smart young people, but the finance end, you know, having the appropriate amount of cash to facilitate those dreams and hire the appropriate people is the hard and tricky part that you may want to go get some experience and learning know-how. Like a lot of young entrepreneurs say, I don't need to go to school. Like you're not learning the finance, borrowing, raising money part on the street very easily. So I think one of the bigger trial and tribulation was raising the money, even you know back 32 years ago. And eventually I needed to raise some money as my company started really growing. And I learned the difference between cash flow and profit because you can be making a lot of money and go out of business. Uh, if you don't have enough cash flow to support the inventory and accounts receivables and things like that. So it, it, there's a lot of trials and tribulations at the beginning, and it is a roller coaster ride. It's difficult, mm-hmm. not easy. Uh, it's never going to be easy to start something from the beginning. Um, and we, if you go into the thing knowing it's going to be really, really hard and having some people around you to catch you when you fall, it probably is the best advice I could give you. 
And did you have any kind of like mentors as you were starting out or people you really leaned on to look for those insights and advice personally? Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely, first of all, I was fortunate. My wife was a, a CPA and a master's of finance. So she ended up really being a great voice on the financial end, even though I have an accounting degree, you know, what she had brought to the table was second to none. You know, my mom was a great mentor of mine uh, to help me in the early stages and always give me different ideas and things to do with the company. I had a bunch. I mean, I've always been somebody who's never been afraid to ask for help and not afraid to have mentors and, and try to take guidance from people. And, and even still to this day, I mean, I have a bunch of mentors and also I have a bunch of kids. You know, I have a bunch of teenagers that are mentors from mine to teach me about the social media and to really give me good insight on how to do digital marketing and social media stuff. And then I reverse mentor back to them on stuff that I can teach them. So I think it's a mistake when people get a little older. Yeah, they may do a little mentoring, but you need to be mentored, especially with things changing so rapidly and quickly. I think one of the, one of the secrets to my game in the last five or 10 years has been the reverse mentoring and keeping in touch with a bunch of young kids that I spend a good amount of time with because they're the best to explain what's really going on and show you the way. Absolutely. And how many uh, people are on your kind of direct team at the Steiner Agency? Uh, the Steiner Agency is for for small company, uh, four employees plus me. Um, it's it's really more consulting and growing. We've only been in business since the summer, so it's it's a nice tight little company. Um, but you know we give out tons of experience. I mean, one of my right hand people has been with me for 25 years, booking talent. Obviously, I'm doing it for 30. And another person also is in the 10 year realm of you know booking talent it is an experienced game, no doubt. So it's really important that you know what you know, and then we you know what you don't know. So that people know, people really need to know what they don't know. And that's when you know you need to get the help. And a lot of times people are you know, really weird about asking for help. And I've just never been, you know, when you, when you don't know, you don't know. And either you got to dig it out and figure it out, or you got to go get help. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that ties back a little bit to kind of how you answered a previous question and you were discussing kind of your vision and and how like you have to have a clear cut vision if you want to ultimately succeed in any business endeavor. And and what I'd ask you is like at, at your time at Syracuse, did you have this clear cut vision of an agency and a sports marketing side and kind of the memorabilia side of things? No, no, not at all. I First of all, there wasn't much sports marketing back in the 70s. I was a hotel restaurant guy. I loved the restaurant business. I, I was cooking a lot in high school and college. Um, I lived with a football player, which sometimes I always tell people like every, all the grains of sand is what equals the beach. And a lot of things you don't think has to do with anything sometimes go around. And me living with a black football player back in those days, and I'm white and that was a rarity too. But, you know, so, you know, but we just became really good friends and I lived with him two out of the four years. And yet, you know, you go into a business where understanding and dealing with a lot of different people of color is critical. So everything really kind of mounted up. But in, in college, I really just wanted to go work in the hospitality business. I, I really love cooking and I loved uh, that business. And that's exactly what I did when I got out. And it led me to opening up uh, the sports, a bunch of sports bars and then the Hard Rock Cafe. So I enjoyed my restaurant hospitality run because I think a big part of business is serving people and, and a big part of the hospitality business is serving people. And anybody who's at any kind of business on any level understands that the bigger you are, even the higher up position, you're just serving more people. 
you know, you're serving your employees, you're serving your customers. And I think the hospitality business does it on, the re- on a real, real level that is critical. I love hiring former restaurant people because I know they understand the importance of serving people and understanding what people need and giving it to them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that's something that we kind of touch on as a company too, is just making, you can differentiate yourself by the from the competition just by servicing the hell out of your clients and really kind of just providing them with everything and outdo yourself in that regard and really give them everything that they need. And, and it's great to yeah. hear that you have that same mindset kind of going up as you're becoming a professional and finding your kind of niche and, and your professional path as well. Well, I mean, you, you know, listen, I think if you want to take a straight line in life, there's, there's some professions and things to do that. And I don't begrudge anyone from doing that. I mean, there's certainly very important careers and, and uh, jobs that, require a straight line approach mm-hmm. and those people are critical and important as we found out in this virus i mean you know mm-hmm. but i think if you're going to get into business on a higher level or entrepreneurism on a higher level which could include any industry frankly then you better be more like a roller coaster ride or going on a sailboat on a day where you're not sure what the weather is because mm-hmm. there's no straight line i mean you better be ready for some twists and turns and you better be ready for some incredible runs or days where there's not even a, a slight wind and you're mm-hmm. not even sure what you're going to do and you're not even sure how you're going to make it till tomorrow because things look so dim mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that come at you over the course of time and you just have to be prepared to pivot and to think and i think even in this time like there's going to be some tremendous I and mean, there's a tremendous thing we're going through even with this virus but I think with great adversity comes great opportunity. I think there'll be a tremendous surge of entrepreneurism in the next 24 months, more than we've seen in a long time. And we've seen some great entrepreneurism in the last four or five years. When you think about it, some of the top companies in the last five years weren't even around six, seven years ago. And that just is not normal. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up, I mean, they were your top companies. They were your top companies pretty much my entire childhood. And it's amazing, uh, you know, all of a sudden how Netflix and Google and a Facebook and a mm-hmm. Apple or, you know what I mean, as opposed to IBM and Coca-Cola and certain other companies. So things are rapidly changing, but I think now it all, you know, now is the roller coaster ride for many. Uh, probably the pin that, you know, or the straw that broke the camel's back in retail. I think we probably have seen the last of retail as we knew it. Uh, mm-hmm. Seeing Neiman go out of business, see Macy's struggling, and we probably have seen retail now finally will go away and mm-hmm. we'll now basically purchase most of our products online, which many people predicted. We just weren't sure when. So then hence, you know, what's next, what else, and what are people going to be able to do that digital can then serve and what is digital not able to serve that now you need to physically go somewhere and do. So there'll be a big changing of the guard with real estate. There's going to be a big changing of the guard as we deal with groceries. And I mean, you know, we, it's not new that the groceries can be bought online, but most of us didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And now that's quadrupled. Um, and that's going to even take a bigger role. And that's going to save us more time. So there's, there's a lot of directions here. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think it perfectly kind of goes back to the point you were talking about reverse mentoring is that the younger generation are more acclimated to the digital landscape and, and to digital marketing and so on. So I think businesses are really going to have to adjust quickly and they might be looking to the younger generation of consumers as well as professionals in their respective companies uh, to lean on them for insights in this case, which is going to be a dramatic shift for everybody in society. 
Well, I think one thing is, is that, first of all, we've lost a lot of older people in this, in this uh, unfortunate circumstance of the virus, which I don't know if people realize, but a lot of the people we have lost have been older people. I mean, there's mm-hmm. different, different circumstances. And the second thing is, you know, we don't have a lot of track record for the older people on what they do when they get older. You know, most of your track career track records usually go to the age of 60 or 65, when most people are now living to 80, 85, and even 90. So a lot of the baby boomer generation, the one that I'm in, are people that were more persistent about working longer, working until the 70s, 75. And I think there's going to be a little bit of a change of the guard there with everything that's happened. I, I think you're going to see a lot of older people say, wait a minute. Maybe I'm going to retire. You know, maybe that maybe I don't need to work anymore. There's a bunch of people that I think are going to start checking out over the next couple of years when something like this happens, and thinking that you know maybe they don't work, work, want to work as much, work as hard. There'll be a lot of movement with some of the high-profile jobs. Um, this is a tremendous amount of stress mm-hmm. on senior management for companies all over the country in every industry that you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube and that will shorten people's careers having gone through this to save your companies and manage your companies. I don't know if employees realize the amount of stress, not knowing what's happening, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing how long it's going to go for, and you keeping everything together is a huge amount of 24-7. And it will push many top-level managers that probably have more than enough money anyway to leave, and you'll see some climbing and, and some movement over these next couple of years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and how do you foresee kind of the future of the sporting industry specifically moving forward kind of post-pandemic? It's I know it's a loaded question. And, uh, yeah. and, and, a, and a question of much fear because, you know, it's funny, like 10, 15 years ago, most of the revenue did come from radio sponsors, TV, you know, and, and in the last six to eight years, particularly, maybe even 10, but definitely in the last five, six to 10 years, a lot more of the gate because of the way the teams have been set up with a lot of debt and borrowing. It does come from the gate. I mean, ticket prices are a lot more money than it ever worth. I, I went to a game with a kid who was, you know, it was five bucks, you know. Mm-hmm. Literally 20 years ago, I think it was 20 bucks. Now that's 200 bucks, 300 bucks. And you see a lot of the commissioners and owners saying that a lot of our revenue is driven from in-stadium sales, suites, luxury holders, premium seats. And then they're now making lots of money off of the concessions, getting fans to go hours before the game, souvenirs. So when you talk about games without fans, this is a huge issue because for a lot of the owners, it's not worth playing. That's mm-hmm. where they're deriving a lot of their profits from, which is the difference between where sports is today versus probably 20 years ago or 15 years ago is that stadium and game stadium revenue is critical. Mm-hmm. So uh, and you lose a lot of your sponsorship money because a lot of the in-game stuff that goes on for sponsors just to showcase fans, uh, product placement, signage, and everything else. So um, I don't know. I, I, I you know, <laughs> Listen, I, I think that this season is definitely going to be a roller coaster. And, you know, I think, you got a lot of smart people running these leagues and, and maybe piece some stuff together, but we probably won't see sports back to anything like what we've known it to be till next year. And I know that's a double downer. You know, are we going to see some jumps? I think we'll see some things here and there, but I, I, I think watching a lot of games without fans is certainly a possibility. And I think going to games and starting enjoying games as we have in the past is probably a 20, 2021. Every big company is planning no in-person events of any sort, trade shows or anything till 21. 
Um, and usually corporate does lead them, you know, they're, they're smart people. And, and I think common sense is that too. So we may get some sports, you know, we may get some things that they'll be able to figure out with testing and stuff. And we may get some a good amount of sports maybe in the fall, depending on, on what happens in these next 30 to 60 days, frankly, mm-hmm. which is very worrisome. So I think it's going to be a hit or miss. I think if you really wanted to bet on anything, you'd bet on sports in 2021, and you probably bet on the fact that there's a good amount of sports between now and the end of the season that just doesn't end up working out. Yeah, and I know where things kind of stand now is that like there's rumors swirling that the MLB is trying to get a start of July 1st, which I think is very, very optimistic, exactly to your point of like the wait to see the next two to three months and then go from there. Um, But I think from an even financial standpoint, the college landscape of people are talking about if college football does not happen or needs to happen without any fans, kind of what the financial impact will be on those universities and institutions and how they'll cope with it. Um, if, in, if like you're exactly correct in 2021, that's when life goes back to normal in terms of the sporting industry. Yeah, no question. And uh, a lot of pressure on, on licenses, you know, there's, and that's, that's another thing like without sports and you, know, you got guarantees and you got products that are sitting there and there's a tremendous amount of product that, that, has logos and teams on there and you, know, you wonder what's going to happen there as far as going an entire season or months without being able to sell much of it a lot of pressure um mm-hmm. i think there's a chance that you can see some baseball this summer but there's also a chance that we don't have a strong enough handle on the testing and the things that are necessary and if you see some states or some cities go backwards and you end up not being able to go play games in the cities and in the, the places where you want to play them which is a big swing of money when the teams don't get to play in their home stadiums, you don't realize that yes, you're losing the fans, but then you start losing your sponsors and you lose the fact of putting up signage. It's a big swing of money where if the Yankees play Yankee stadium and the Red Sox play at Fenway, you may not get your fan revenue, but you can still control the signage behind home plate, the signs out in the outfield and you can control and dictate to drive people to certain things. Mm-hmm. So uh, it gets, very complicated and there's a lot of money at stake you know a lot of these teams are highly you know, have high amounts of debt you know their balance sheets and, and you know they need revenue like they owe banks a lot a lot of money they were bought on a lot of these teams were bought on bank loans and you know it's not like the old school where you, know, you have these owners and they, they bought their teams and they're they, some of these teams are not as set financially as you would think mm-hmm. some of them are very well set so it's going to be interesting. I mean, you have some smart people running it. I'm praying that we get some games going. It'd be nice to be able to get us be able to watch some some competition, obviously in a safe way. I'm right there with you and hoping that, yeah, we get some return of normalcy, especially in the sporting world and, and get it quickly, but obviously don't want to take that risk and, and do make rash decisions just simply to have sports back. So yeah, we'll see how those great minds and the commissioners kind of handle it case by case. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a big question. (laughs) <laughs> and we'll be talking about it. And the good news is tomorrow we can have a completely different conversation. Exactly. A hundred and hundred percent. Yeah. And so now switching gears kind of back to you and your professional life, um, what does the future look like for your companies? The good news is that I have some, I have a nice smaller version. My companies are nice and, and tight and very hyper-focused. So we can, we see a lot of people that are home putting their stuff up on our site because they clean their basements and garages. They have over 50,000 items on collectible exchange. So that's cool. You know, there's a lot of buying and trading. People are bored and, you know, they're 
So they're, 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 there's a good activity actually on that site. I think on the Steiner agency, we're doing a lot of virtual uh, talks, you know, all the stuff that where players had to go and travel and this and that, they're doing it online, which is pretty good for them. You know, they're able to, and, and, and the players and celebrities are a lot more available right now. So we're able to go get a lot of players doing some digital stuff that in the past they weren't so gung ho about doing. So we're seeing a little bit of an uptick. And I think when things calm down a little bit, we'll see even a bigger uptick because your CEOs and CMOs are a little more accustomed to doing more digital marketing and, and that kind of stuff. And then the, the players, because frankly, they are a little more available and also because they don't have to travel, do a lot of this stuff. They realize they can do a lot of them home. We'll, we'll, we'll compromise a little bit on their price so you can get a little more of a bang for your buck. So I'm very optimistic about, you know, these, this connecting the athletes with companies now, especially there are a lot of companies doing really well right now. You know, there are a lot of companies struggling and, you know, with this virus has definitely, you know, blown them up in some regards. And there's a lot of companies that are blown up in the right direction. You know, there are companies that are doing extremely well and are struggling to even keep up with production. So I'm trying to focus on the fish that are swimming, you know, the sharks that seem to be doing okay. And uh, there are a bunch of companies that are doing well and, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, in incorporate some players into what they're doing. That's great. And I, I really <laughs> like the point that you touched on because I never even thought of it, that kind of memorabilia could step up at this time with people cleaning their homes and, and finding kind of things that have been lying around the house that do have tremendous value. For our listeners that kind of might not know fully of what Collectible Exchange is, could you kind of walk through what like the user experience would be if somebody did have memorabilia around their house and what they should do with it? Well, the first thing you want to do is make a list. I mean, it's amazing when people don't have an inventory. Make a list of what you have. And actually, you can take some pictures of the stuff that you think is the better stuff. And, you know, with an inventory, then somebody can analyze it without too much of an effort or even cost for that matter. So for us, I, I analyze inventory all the time. And I have a few people in my office that do that as well. So if you have a, a list of some stuff, you want to know what it's worth, which is probably good for insurance or something ever happens to you, at least your kids know what the valuable stuff is, but sometimes you're just looking at some ratty, raggedy jersey that's worth about 10 grand that you got 10 years ago as a gift, and it's a game-used jersey from a really high-profiled uh, big-name player. So make an inventory where you have, take some pictures, and, and actually write one line about how you obtained it, and then you got to start looking at the first thing after I look at uh, an inventory list, which you easily can send that in. Collectible Exchange has a button that you can collect, you can click and you can actually uh, ask questions about certain things you have. We can, do, we can tell you what it's worth, but then you got to look at the authentication because people demand that, and we help. If some of your stuff has authentication. If you need authentication, we have several independent authenticators that we can turn you on to with certain items so that they'll be worth more, and uh, that's the next step. And then the third step is, should I stay or should I go? You know, Do you want to keep it? Uh, do you want to sell it? Do you want to auction it? And there's a few different options depending on your collection that we try to advise people to do. That's great. And do um, users need kind of like any paid subscription to be able to kind of execute no. the auctions? Awesome. No, no, no. We help you set it up. You can set up yourself. And, and some people that have larger amounts of stuff actually send it to us. And we help them set it up for a little bit of an additional fee. But what's good is what happens is sometimes people get roped into just doing an auction. But a lot of collections need to be do both. A lot of collections, you actually just need to put it up and sell it as it sells, almost eBay-like. Mm -hmm. And then some of the stuff you auction off. So we try to offer the solution, which for the, for the uh, seller, a lot of times is needed because sometimes a seller has, has a budget of the same thing in their collection. 
And it's not a good idea just to auction them all off at one time because the market isn't able to handle 10 of something or six of something. So you auction off one or two of them and then you actually sell those off over a couple of years. And that's how you make the most amount of money actually. Awesome. That's fantastic. And yeah, I think a lot of people would, would be really kind of willing to take advantage of that process too, especially now with kind of the, the financial uh, impacts that this has all been taking on us. So everybody could, could really use some uh, extra cash lying around too, just like their memorabilia is. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and people are, you know, people are cashing out or and sometimes just cleaning out, you know, or organizing, forgot all some of the stuff that they have. And, you know, it's just a moment of clarity sometimes in these things, like what we're going through are happening. Mm-hmm. And you realize that, you know, that garage is just way, and there's some other people that can use that sporting equipment. And then these collectibles maybe are better off selling them and putting that money into the kid's account for college or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing from so many different people with so many different stories, uh, players that are just sitting with crazy amounts of stuff that we're, in some cases, just storing for them because it's not the right time for them to sell their stuff, but they need to get out of their house. Mm-hmm. So we're able to help them with that as well. That's great. And, and to kind of jump back into you personally, obviously, you do so much between kind of the writing the books and, and managing the, the player side of it, as well as the memorabilia, I, I like to ask kind of to, to see the in, inside look at a business leader's life is what does like a day in the life of Brandon Steiner look like? And I guess you could answer this one of two ways with pre pandemic and, and currently, but uh, yeah, what yeah. is kind of a day to day for you? Well, you know, it, it... I think the hardest work you're going to do is thinking. So whether I was managing over, you know, 100 people, 150 people, whether I'm managing a small group as I am now, the hard work is still the same, which is thinking, you know, what's next, what else, what's missing, you know, what's the white space, what else do I need to do to serve my customers and give them a more more value, which is, you know, what what you could do for someone that they can't do for themselves. I'm always thinking value proposition. What are my customers needing in a time like, you know, what's going on now? What are my customers needing when, you know, you're in the middle of the World Series and, and you're trying to always think of value proposition. Mm-hmm. So that's no different. Now, I usually use that time while I'm working out in the morning, try to get up uh, relatively early time, get get my workout in almost every day. And the workout is more for my ADHD and, and more mental stamina. Uh, it's more of the mental gym than the physical gym, even though I am working out and doing some elliptical or taking basketball shots, whatever it is. But I, I will do that six times a week. And then during that time, I'll space it out. So I'm actually using it as thinking time, time to ponder. A lot of times my wife will walk in the exercise and says, well, what are you doing? I'm working out. Just, <laughs> you're sitting there. I'm working out. I'm in the mental gym right now, thinking. And uh, that's the hardest part. I'm trying to review where my people are, where my customers are, trying to step outside myself to really think about if I'm approaching something the correct way trying to think about people that maybe I've forgotten to call. And that that's a good couple hours in my morning before I get started. And then, I, you know, I, I follow a really simple rule, which is figure out what's most important and do what's most important. And and uh, it's critical. And I'm a very big to-do list and MVP list, most valuable priority list guy. As I'm sitting here talking to you, I have my MVP list here. And there's definitely some specific stuff that will have to get done today by 6 o'clock tonight. If I look correct. And as I'm talking, I'm looking at that list. I'm beginning to see, you know, just some of that crunch. Um, I think, you know, the most the most difficult part of the business, as if you're going to run one, is, you know, trying to find the right people, which is difficult to find all the right people, but finding a few key people that are going to help you share your vision, 
get on get in the, the boat and row the same direction kind of thing. It's really hard to find those 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 two or three key key people that you surround yourself with to help facilitate your decisions and, and direction. So that's um, you know where I spend the next bit of time usually in the morning with is, is making sure I'm touching base with those people and then touching base with some of the more important clients. Um, and then when you're in the young stages of a new business, I mean, it, it, it becomes a it becomes a roller coaster ride, man. You know, you got different things coming at you, and you got to be prepared to figure out which ones you want to deal with and which ones you have the time to deal with. It's really cool to hear that you kind of devote actual time for yeah mental fitness and and sitting down and just thinking and planning out kind of your day and and kind of your short term goals and everything along those lines. I, I know that that's it's a great way to stay organized and obviously kind of keep yourself on the path to success. The problem is that most people are running their businesses and it's not to knock them, but it's just, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's the sprint versus the marathon. Like a lot of people go into their business, very energized. And it, they, they, they look at each day like a sprint and, and, you know, in the sprint is you, you know, you get to the starting block and you run as fast as you can. There's not a lot of time for strategy. There's not a lot of time to alter, pivot, think differently. So I try to go into as many days as I can more in a marathon mindset. I think there's some times in my day where I got to get into a sprint mode, but I generally want to be in a marathon mode, which is much more long-term thinking, big-time thinking, take a lot more factors and strategy into account, and play the long game, you know, where I'm, I'm making sure I'm incorporating things that may not pay off on that particular day, but over the long run is going to pay off. And that's more of a marathon. You know, you're doing certain things at the beginning of a race that will pay dividends at the end of a race. Whereas when you're in a sprint, you're, you're in a sprint and it is what it is. And you're going as fast as you can until and the race is over. Um, so I like to look at my day more marathon-like and I'm going to touch base and do things. I mean, I don't know what's going to come from this pot I'm doing with you. But, you know, in the long game, there could be somebody, young young person listening or a business person listening that may need to do something with me down the road or may now learn a little more about me. And I don't know how that's going to have an effect on today. So I'll schedule these pods even though a lot of high-level decision-making say, well, I don't have time for that. But in the long run, somebody may listen to this a month down the road or whatever. And I think you got to incorporate all those kinds of factors. And I think in today's day, the other thing is, is that you've got to now schedule where you used to be able to do a, a company meeting or even an online meeting. you got to do much more one-on-one with staff. Mm-hmm. Staff's not interested in, in going to a, a company meeting, whether it's virtual or in, in a, in a uh, conference room. They always think when you do these virtual group meetings or in a conference room meeting, everybody always thinks you're talking to someone else. So I stopped doing them. You know, I, I, I allocate time to talk to people individually as often as I can. That's a better play for me. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you highlighted kind of the one-on-one aspect because I do think that's what professionals want to see kind of now and, and really gain, garner feedback on a personal and individual level. And, and that'll allow them to grow uh, as a professional too throughout their career. So I think it ties back perfectly in all kind of what you're describing with the mentoring process also with your company. I think so. I mean, I think you're also going to incorporate now a lot more for mental health to your employees and realize that some staff, uh, you know, dealing with different issues that they're not necessarily always equipped for. And if they're not good mentally, they're probably not helping you on the bottom line either. Mm-hmm. So being able to figure out how to help staff along with family issues and different things has now become a much bigger issue in managing people, which is, makes it hard. I mean, I think I always use the police as an example. Like, it's really hard. I keep it on understand. And there's, there's been a lot of screw-ups out there with police. Uh, but as an overall, you know, you've seen some, you see the isolated cases where something really bad happens. Somebody gets shot that shouldn't be. 
But it's really hard to be a police officer now. It's really hard, not because of their job that they do, but because of what comes at them, the diversity of situations that come at them is so much wider than it's ever been. You know, one minute you got a guy coming at you with a gun and threatening to shoot you. And next minute you have another person who looks just like that guy with a gun and he's just in a complete despair. And he, you know, then, then another person comes in and she just got beat by her husband and another woman comes out, you know, such, I mean, there's such, there's such a mental health problem in this country. And you have to assume that that train is stopping in your station too. Mm-hmm. Like, you gotta be crazy to think that, you know, that, that mental health issues aren't in your company too, you know, alcohol mm-hmm. abuse, drug abuse, all kinds of different problems. And to ignore that is silly. So, you know, I see more and more in the future of, you know, therapists, in-house therapists. Like, you know, you have resource counselors who end up being somewhat therapists in- internally with companies. You'll probably see more therapists internally, like, like that show Billions as the internal therapist. Um, and I think you'll see more of that with companies offering more mental health because at the end of the day, if you're struggling to figure out how to raise your kid or a problem that your kid's on drugs or you're having a problem with your wife, how productive are you going to be in the office? It's costing you tons of money. So to offer internal help is probably a way of the future. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes we're going to see a lot of it after this virus. I mean, we're going to yeah. see a lot of people that are broken in many ways. And first of all, just having spent a lot of time at home and now realizing that what they thought was their home has completely changed because they've been mm-hmm. on the road so much. And just spending a lot of time with your your wife, your husband, and reintroducing yourself. And this is an extensive amount of time that most of us have not spent with our spouses and loved ones. So there's, there's a lot of shaking up going on right now, not to mention businesses lost, wealth lost, careers lost. I mean, there's a lot of shakeup. And uh, you know, that we're gonna have to, you know, try to figure out how to fix. Mm-hmm. No, that, that makes complete sense. And I'd kind of turn it back to you and say, is there something that you have found that has really helped you from like a, yeah, like a mental health standpoint? And I know you touched on kind of exercising your, uh, and pondering every day and thinking, but also kind of with you writing as an author, has writing books kind of been therapeutic in that regard to you? And do you plan on doing that more in the future as well? Well, yeah, I mean, the writing was very therapeutic and uh, I've written thousands of blogs, which, you know, uh, a couple hundred thousand people get my blog on brandonsteiner.com, but I haven't written anything in a couple months. I've had a little bit of a block. I've written maybe the least amount in the last few months. Um, for, I'm not sure for many reasons why, partly just my hyper-focus on starting something new. And I am, um, I am, you know, taking notes on all this stuff that's happening. So I want to share what it's like to reset and, and go through transition as an older person. And I want to share that with a lot of older people that are going through the struggles of you know, you're 50, 55 years old, you're doing something for 25, 30 years, you want to do something different. I want to share some of the experiences of doing that. So I will start writing soon. And I think for me, what I try to do in an environment like this, and, and certainly, you know, I'm a little bummed to have anxiety like everyone else, but I really try to use a lot of picturalization and try to imagine what this is going to be like when it's over. And I try to see where the opportunity is. And I try to spend at least a few hours of my day thinking about some schemes and dreams of what people are maybe potentially going to need and I start playing it out and, and start seeing if that's something I want to jump into. Like I look at the restaurant business who's critical industry in this country and, and, and an immense amount of people and uh, entertainment, everything else. And I, and I see people that are much more old school in that industry 
And I worry about whether they could pivot and whether they can go get their takeout, whether they can go get their delivery systems in order, and whether it's fast foods can up their game a little bit and do more family-style fast food. If I'm going to go to McDonald's, it probably now needs to be not be two Big Macs for $1.99. We need to start talking about what it's going to be for four or six people, and like, like Kentucky Fried Chicken does. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of the takeouts on the better restaurants, like, you know, I'm not going to go pay $30 for an entree. It's coming in a tin can. So they, and, and people are just not going to go to those restaurants so quickly. So how do you pivot? I'd still like to get a nice meal delivered to my house. Maybe it could be a little cheaper. Maybe it could be done in family style. And a lot of those restaurants just, just don't do great on digital marketing and social media. They're not good at it. And they very, most of them don't have individuals in their, in their restaurants doing digital marketing. But at the end, that's the beauty of social media marketing is you can completely hyper-focus to your customer base. It could be in a two, three, four mile range. So for those restaurants that are destination restaurants, they're going to have to pivot and pivot quickly or they're going to be out. Uh, so like part of me says, I wonder if I should go back into the restaurant consulting business and help companies develop takeout and delivery systems and different types of entertainment where you, you ship out a meal and have the chef show you how to prepare that meal on a live Facebook. So let's say I'm a big fan of this restaurant. They're going to make a chicken piccata. And now you can order that chicken piccata, which gets shipped to you in, in the afternoon. And then the wife is making the chicken piccata with the chef, one of our favorite restaurants. You know, having those chefs show, you know, some of the, the cool baking techniques and just get customers involved with your restaurant in a different way. Um, I, I think there's a lot of things that need to happen and they need to happen soon or we're going to end up with about 50 percent of the restaurants in this country going out and not coming back. And not only is that going to be bad for a way, way amount of, amount of people, but it's going to be bad for real estate. It's going to be bad for lack of entertainment and fun. Um, you know, I'm really nervous about that industry as well as the hotel business. You know, there's a lot of hotels that you know rely on travel, uh, vacations and stuff, and that's not coming back for a while. And I think they've got to pivot. Uh, the good news is when this does calm down, there's definitely going to be a backlog of bar mitzvahs, birthdays, weddings, and uh, you know, figuring out how to turn your facility into a you know a very efficient catering hall where you're able to do multiple parties and possibly getting tents set up so you can do multiple parties at the same time because you think about how many events have been canceled that people want to reschedule mm-hmm. you just look at sports alone and how many weddings where people are going to still want to do their party or this or that and so maybe the maybe the tourist business is going to be down for a while but you know hotels need to pivot quickly on this on the type of hospitality that will be available that people are going to be looking to do so there's a lot of pivoting and a lot of thinking, and, 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 and some of these industries are not necessarily the freshest, you know, understanding how to do, do that. I'm, I'm nervous about that. Mm-hmm. No, that makes complete sense. And I think everybody's kind of having that same thought process of just how it's all going to play out um, and, and staying in the food industry. And I read this online, so I have to ask, is it true that you are actually the inventor of the everything bagel? It is true. It's a long story. It's in my last book. And then you must have saw the Gary V podcast, which was, you know, he, we talked about the everything bagel, which when I was delivering newspapers and I was trying to build up my route, I had offered bagels and milk to all the older people in the neighborhood. And uh, that's how I got into the bagel game. Uh, the, the bakery that I used to pick up all the bagels from hired me as a baker. And then they hired, promoted me to the night baker. And I was screwing around with all these different types of bagels to make, uh, braids and smushing salt and poppy and all kinds of different stuff together and then uh i had all these seeds on the on the on the table i just threw everything on there that's how we got the everything one 
going. Wow. It's, it's, it's a better story, which I, I do tell on a, a blog. You can actually go on my blog. You look the story up. It's a good story. I didn't capitalize on it because I was only 12 at the time, 13 years old. So mm-hmm. a lot of people made a lot of money off the everything, everything. But um, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to bake the bagels back in the early 70s uh, when bagels were really starting to take off as a retail operation. Um, you know, and uh, they're only six cents, by the way. And it's, it was fun. It was a fun business that I was able to get into in the 70s when really the economy was really bad. And I always had a part-time job because all these bagel stores were opening up. And uh, I was an experienced baker even at 14, 15, 16, all the way through high school. Uh, that's awesome. And yeah, I would highly recommend everybody go check out that story. because yeah, I would highly recommend if you're a parent out there to <laughs> have your kid do a part-time job. You know, they got all these internships and trying to do this and that. Just having your kid bust some tables or just doing some, you know, just getting a warehouse these days. The warehouse business is booming. I highly recommend. I know it's important to get these high-profile internships and meet all these important people. But creating a good work ethic and understand how money gets made in a simplistic level in high school is a, is a good learning experience for your kids. Mm-hmm. No, it makes complete sense. And, and yeah, I pre- really appreciate you again, taking the time to talk to us today, Brandon, and covering off on all these different grounds. I mean, no matter kind of uh, if you're a professional and no matter what the industry is, you're definitely taking away some inf- insights from this discussion. Uh, so it's been fantastic. And we like to end every episode with kind of a lightning round of personal fun questions. Um, sure. So if you're ready, yep, I'll dive right into it. I'm always ready. <laughs> all right. So we always start with the same question, but what was the first car you ever owned? It was a, it was a, uh, a Delta 88 Oldsmobile, and uh, the radio was that, 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 that. That was me singing, and then um, <laughs> had manual. It was manual steering. I mean, to drive this car, I bought it for 500 bucks, and uh, but it had a huge engine, and uh, I highly don't recommend that car for your first car for a kid. Um, it was a, but you know, it was my car, and so I got to school, and it was one big jalopy boy. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, if you had to pick... No one's ever asked me that. (laughs) That's what usually when we ask that question, people tell us these kind of romantic stories about their first car and how it's their favorite and they still want it today. Uh, But that's what I... I bought it with my own money. I bought that with my own money. My mother wanted to teach me a lesson, the responsibility (laughs) that came with the car. And, you know, changing the windshield wiper blades, which, you know, flat tires. I mean, anything that can happen to a car happened to this one. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was more of a life experience than a, a, a pa- form of passage. <laughs> no question. Yeah. So if I had to ask you, do you have a favorite Yankee player of all time, and who would it be? Of course. I mean, you know, I always loved Roy White, uh, low key switch hitter. Probably should be in the. Uh, he probably should be out there in Monument Park. Um, loved him, loved Phil Rizzuto. I actually got to represent in the 90s when he went into the Hall of Fame. I was always a big Scooter fan because we listened to him religiously as a child that we mimicked him, make fun of him. And he, he was just an amazing Yankee and then getting to know him. So I would say those two. But Roy White was, as a kid, I was always rooting for him and Bobby Mercer. Those are the two greats in the uh, 70s and um, that, that really were guys we could relate to and we followed religiously. Mm-hmm. And what what is Brandon Steiner's all time favorite meal? That's no question. It's there's two of my favorite meals, and I've told my kids that if anything ever happens and I'm about to go, just bring this stuff. I can't eat it; I can smell it. And that would be uh, LMB pizza. 
in Brooklyn, the best pizza on the planet, and uh, Katz's Deli on Houston Street and First Avenue, which has been around for 125 years. Both those restaurants were regular big night outs for me when we were kids, and uh, I love Katz's Deli, and then love L&B Pizza. The problem is, is as I'm getting older, it's hard to eat those five or six slices in one sitting. <laughs> That's awesome. And what is your all-time favorite book? Well, uh, it's Joe Girard um, selling selling anything to everybody. Uh, he was a car salesman, and it was a book that was extremely helpful to me. And, and I use this system. It's a little bit passe, but his methodology, and I actually ended up hiring him to speak to my company. He was in his 80s at that point. But um, Joe Girard, was a, that was a great sales book that I really enjoyed. And then Ogmandino is the other one of my favorite books. Is uh, the greatest the greatest success in the world, which teaches about what real success is about and gives you a uh, uh, spiritual overview about what real success is about. It's a 60 page book that you could read in a minute, but it, it definitely drives home what's really important to be successful. And the final question of the lightning round, is there a specific piece of memorabilia that is most special to you? I mean, probably my, my uh, Thurman Munson autograph that I got when I was at Fenway Park and then in the hotel, I, I ran into Thurman. He signed my scorecard. Uh, love that piece. And it's something that um, you know I cherish because first time I went to see Fenway and Thurman was one of my favorite Yankees. And to, to get that autograph, which is such a rare autograph, is mm-hmm. special. That is special. I got, the last piece, I got the last piece that Mariana wore in the old stadium for the last pitch ever in that stadium. Um, and, uh, love those cleats, love Mariano. And, uh, so those, that's one of my favorites too. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. And, and just to close off, are there any kind of final words that you'd like to add? Um, you know, be faithful. I think that, you know, a lot of people talk about success in terms of money and, and things you have, but a lot of the things ultimately that you want to have, you can talk yourself into your dreams and talk yourself out of your dreams, but you know, faith is such an important part of success and, and faith is something that you can actually wish and hope and, and, and want, even though you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, there's a time when, you know, it's really important to be faithful when we're going through trying times like this, but even in business, you know, trust your strategy, trust your ability, have faith in your ability, have faith in your strategy. And that will lead you to confidence and that will lead you to a lot of less stress when you're confident in your ability and you're confident in your strategy. And I, I recommend it um, if you want to get to a high level of business and the success, you know, check your level of volume of faith and check your volume of strategy and check your volume of your confidence, and your own ability. Because those are things that you can work on every day. You work mm-hmm. on your strategy, you can work on your, your ability and realize what you're capable of doing. And then, you can go into things full blazing. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Brandon, for taking the time to join us today. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the My BFF Business Leaders Podcast. <laughs>